Good evening once again, folks. I am Guy Malone, your host for the next two hours, thanking you for joining in on yet another electrifying, action-packed, star-studded edition of Live from Roswell. We're broadcasting to you worldwide over the Paranormal Radio Network, live from sunny Roswell, New Mexico, on this Sunday evening, December 9, 2007. And before I forget, I do want to tell you that I'm going to take a break for the next two weeks. Joe will probably subject you to reruns of past Live from Roswell archives and interviews we've done. And I'll be back in the saddle come the first Sunday evening in January for you with new programming and content. Coming up on us very shortly tonight, I have one of the coolest and most knowledgeable persons in the field of UFO researcher on tap tonight. It's Nicholas Redfern, and as my, he'll be my guest and yours tonight. Nick has uh, very recently begun a new blog detailing his continuing investigation into the government's investigation of people like you and I, people who are involved in the UFO research community, that is, and he'll be telling us what exactly the government has been up to in all of their spying on folks like us. But before Nick comes on, though, um, I've got for you tonight a few breaking UFO news articles that I'd like to share with you. Some of you might recall from a couple years back that I regularly published a breaking UFO news website and used to write a regular column for UFO magazine. And the goal of that was to keep people like us interested in this stuff abreast of all the news reports about UFOs that are being published by real sources. I would link to them and then summarize those for an article in UFO magazine. That's been a while. I got busy with conferences and such. But I hope to resurrect that in some form uh, just for this program, actually. And I'll be sharing those links and stories with you on this website, livefromroswell.com, in the future. And uh, getting that together is something I plan to be working on during my little end-o-year break here, though, for you. But before covering all that news, though, um, Live from Roswell is sponsored in part by Alien Resistance HQ, which offers biblical perspectives on UFOs and abductions, as well as DVDs from our past conferences held here in sunny Roswell, New Mexico. See alienresistance.org. And now RoswellUFOConference.com as well as AncientOfDays.net for all the DVDs offered. And the older ones are still are offered on a name-your-own-price donations basis. And also for information on how you can be a sponsor of this program, you can have your commercials read aloud to an average of around thirty or 40,000 listeners per broadcast or have your banner on my website. Just please visit www.livefromroswell.com and click on the text link near the top of the page. Aside from simple banners on the site, I can read your scripted commercials at strategic times just like this and before and after commercial breaks that our highly targeted listener base of rich, intelligent, and good-looking people can know about your UFO, your sci-fi, or your paranormal-related product, your service, or an event, as well as help ensure that Paranormal Radio Network keeps on plugging with quality programming, you know, just like this one. And I also accept gifts, by the way. <laughs> My address and even shirt size are posted at the bottom of livefromroswell.com for you. Okay, and I said I have some news stories to call your attention to. Uh, this is stuff that's going on recently. I just uh, surf the net and find stuff occasionally, and these are all linked from livefromroswell.com, by the way. And I think you'll want to visit the page and take a look at some of these. Um, the first is that, um, similarly to how I told you a couple weeks ago that Larry King polled his audience for CNN on whether people believed in UFOs, currently Parade Magazine, uh, which you might know it as one of those inserts in your Sunday paper, also has a poll going on whether people believe in life on other planets. However, unlike the Larry King one, 
when I told you about it a couple weeks ago, this one is still actively taking votes on their webpage. At least it was a couple of hours ago. When I last checked, um, they had results of just about 300-something votes, and the result that they were getting so far was, yes, 88% of those polled do believe in life on other planets. But just visit livefromroswell.com right now if you want to read their little uh, cough, cough, kind of fluff article. But you can cast your vote in their poll as well. And that website also allows you to post comments on the article that they have online, by the way. So go participate in that. Also, linked from livefromroswell.com. Now, I don't know if you caught this little fiasco in the news lately, but very recently the New Mexico Department of Tourism began running some TV ads which at least some people are calling gross or at least controversial. They're ads that are enticing people to come to New Mexico, and they're starring actors dressed up in these Sigourney Weaver alien-style costumes, but with a shirt and a tie and things like that. Then they're doing things just like sitting around the water cooler, discussing how great a vacation in New Mexico would be. Now, I don't think I've heard that the Roswell Chamber of Commerce has even chimed in on it, but from other parts of New Mexico, they definitely are chiming in. They're saying how tacky and offensive these ads are. And that's created a bit of a controversy in these here parts. Uh, in quotes, we don't need to bring our standards down, is what the critic of uh, one critic says of the New Mexico ad campaign. But anyways, I've got the MSNBC article linked for you, you know, as if you really care about the article. But more interesting, I've also got the direct link where you can watch the ads themselves if you're not in one of the cities where they've been aired on so far, uh, including San Diego and Minneapolis, just because they both have direct flights into New Mexico. But anyways, I do think they're pretty funny, just in my little humble opinion. I think you will also. So check that out. It's linked from livefromroswell.com on the right side of the page with the uh, funny alien-looking video image posted there. On a, a somewhat less fluffy, less fluffier side, I've also got a link up posted right now uh, from a CBS News about a recent court decision that NASA must search for and release its records pertaining to a 1965 UFO sighting in Pennsylvania that uh, many researchers have been trying to get their hands on these documents, and the court has just recently ordered that NASA has to both look for them and turn them over. So I'll let you read that one on your own if that sounds interesting to you. It's also posted on the right side of livefromroswell.com. Also on the webpage, you'll see our toll-free telephone number if you'd like to call in tonight and be on the air with us. If you'd like to discuss tonight's topic with myself and our esteemed guest, Nicholas Redfern, and you can also email me at talktome at livefromroswell.com, T-A-L-K-T-O-M-E, at livefromroswell.com. And just please do state the, your name and the city you're calling from. We'll share that on the air. Or you can call our toll-free number that's listed on the website. But right before I bring Nick on, I'd also like to mention just more in a public service announcement kind of way that longtime UFO researcher and author Mark Davenport, uh, whom you may not have heard too much from lately, is in ill health right now, and he is attempting to sell his massive library of UFO research books. I got an email from him with several attachments listing all the titles that he's sitting on. He's just asking people to pass this around if they can help him. And I've posted his contact info, his email address, also at the very top of livefromroswell.com. It's in big yellow text. If you'd like to email him directly about inquiring, he'll send you the attachments and show you the lists that he's got that he's selling. He's got tons of magazines and UFO journals. 
as well as a huge library of books. And he says he believes in the email that the fair market value of his library is about $5,000. But I think he's in an or best offer kind of situation right now. So you can either get his email off of my site or just email me at talktomeatlivefromroswell.com, and I will forward you both his email and the attachments if you're interested and possibly able to help him out with that. Uh, Mark is the husband of Leah Haley, by the way, whom you might also be familiar with. She's been on our program, has got books of her own, done some speaking. But I'd also encourage you to just help him out if possible. His email contact info is at the top of livefromroswell.com. And I'm about out of breath already, so I guess now is a good time to bring in Nick Redburn. Hey, cheers, mate. <laughs> How's hey, it going for you? How's it going? Oh, pretty well. Good. Pretty well. Are you chilly in Texas like we are in New Mexico yeah, it's right pretty, now? pretty cool. It's uh, reminding me of being back home. It's, uh, it's temperatures I can cope with and I enjoy. <laughs> Shoot. Yeah, it's, it's balmy, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah it's cold. and The wind's actually howling like something out of a horror film right now, so. Uh, no, I was I was going to ask, have you seen those commercials I was referring to? No, I actually haven't seen them. I saw a lot of debate on the Internet about it, but um, no, I haven't seen them. Uh, well, they're kind of funny. Mm, like yeah. I told everyone else, I've got the direct link to commercials yeah. up on live from Roswell.com. It's the New Mexico Tourism Department. Uh-huh. Uh, I got a quick message about um, something new concerning Farscape, the TV. Did you ever watch no, that, Nick? No, I never did, no. Okay, now someone was asking me um, about that that I mentioned last week. There is, uh, for those that missed it, there are going to be new episodes of Farscape produced on the Sci-Fi Channel, or at least I'd say by the Sci-Fi Channel. But they are going to be um, done as web episodes that you can only watch on the Internet. So if anyone's interested in that, I did have a link up to it last week, like that, and I think it's in the archives still. But too bad. You're missing out on some good TV if you're not a Farscape fan, Nick. Yeah, I've never actually been into sci-fi. I like horror, but I've never really been into science fiction at all. Yeah, just from looking at your MySpace page, I can tell you like horror. Yeah, people <laughs> often kind of surprise and they think, you know, they think of something to UFOs. But I'm, I must watch a lot of sci-fi, but I don't. I just, I never really got into it, so I kind of, I like zombie stuff and horror stuff, gothic horror, things like that, so. Well, I know you've done mostly straight research, but when you talk about um, the the zombie or the monster mm-hmm. stuff, you've actually got a book detailing monsters and stuff like that, don't you? Yeah, I've, I've written well, I've written ten books altogether, of which three are on cryptozoology. That's the study of things like uh, unknown animals, Bigfoot, Loch Ness monster, the Yeti, things like um, the Chupacabras. Um, one called Three Men Seeking Monsters, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter and then one on a strange British folkloric Bigfoot-type creature known as the Man Monkey. So I kind of, you know, sort of spread around what I do and uh, try and keep uh, active. And, you know, I've got a lot of different interests. So if I want to do a, 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 you know, a UFO but one year, I'll do that, and Bigfoot the next. So. You started doing this way back, obviously, in case nobody's... Uh, if people are unfamiliar with you as an author, or researcher, or lecturer, you're not from around these parts, no, I'm not, right? No. It's not a local accent. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> okay. What's a, what's a little background on how you got involved in writing? Um, well, I started writing when I um, finished school. I worked on um, a rock music and entertainment magazine back in England called Zero. And this was basically um, article writing, interviewing, reviews, that sort of thing. And I'd already got an interest in you know, unsolved mysteries, the paranormal, etc. 
And I enjoyed doing the writing on the magazine and then thought, well, you know, what's the possibility of combining the two? You know, the interest in writing and the interest in the paranormal. So I began sort of looking out for the, the publications that existed at that time. This was sort of mid-80s onwards. And um, started writing from, for some of them, doing reviews. And then that was kind of build up into do, really invited to do lectures and conferences. And I guess it sort of spiraled from there. Um, and then, you know, I had the, the journalism background as a, as a job, if you like, and this was like a hobby, and then it, that kind of took over where the, the journalism became, uh, you know, to some, in some respects at least, sort of secondary to the, to the UFO material and the books and the magazine work. So that's, that's how it sort of all kicked off for me, I guess. And you said you've done 10 books total. Yeah. I've, I've got one linked right now on Live from Roswell, I think uh, that's one of the things we're definitely wanting to talk about tonight. It's the uh, Saucer Spies mm. book. Yes. Uh, tell us about that, really. That's what I think these people want to hear right now. The, the book, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, well basically, um, I've written five books on UFOs, four of which deal with UFO incidents or encounters, sightings, etc. But the On the Trail of the Saucer Spies is a book that I've wanted to do for a long time and just kept putting it off because I just never really got around to writing it, I suppose. And it deals with a subject that I think a lot of people in the subject of UFO research are familiar with and may have even had their own experiences of. Um, and that's the way in which government agencies and the intelligence world and the military watch those of us in the UFO research subject that carry out investigations. So it's not really a study of UFO reports, it's a study of how the government secretly spies on the UFO community. And, you know, over the years, I'd, you know, going to conferences and lectures and writing books, people would contact me and say, you know, I investigated this case, and shortly afterwards I got a visit from this weird guy asking all sorts of questions, like a classic man in black type encounter. Or um, we also got a number of files that began to surface through the Freedom of Information Act, um, things like FBI, FBI surveillance files on people like George Adamski and George Van Tassel. So what I did one day, I think it was around about sort of mid-2004, I sat down and went through all the filing cabinets and records and everything I'd got just to try and pull together all the various reports that were on record concerning people who in some capacity, either small or large, had been watched by the government or the intelligence world at some point because of their UFO research. And one of the things that surprised me was that, um, you know, rather than it being a rare thing, it seemed almost like everybody and his brother at some point was being watched or had been watched in varying degrees and so I thought well you know you could find an article in this magazine from 10 years ago and one in that one from five years ago and somebody had mentioned two pages on something in this book why not try and put everything under one cover where you know or as much material as possible at least um, that would allow the reader to understand and appreciate why we are watched and, and what's going on and the history of it so that's what I finally did and um, and that's what On the Trail of the Source of Spies is basically about. What would you say, uh, have you run into experiences where you just knew you were being watched or interviewed or listened to? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been a couple of occasions, and I point this out in the book. I mean, one of the, one of the strangest ones of all for me was um, a British case that myself and a colleague investigated back in England in 1996. And this dealt with the reported crash of a small triangular-shaped object in an area of um, forest in central England called the Cannock Chase. 
which is actually, coincidentally enough, only about four miles from where I used to live. And the, the story behind this was first published in um, Leonard Stringfield's 1991 crashed UFO status report that he self-published. And he meant, Stringfield mentioned how he got this story from a retired U.S. Navy guy that this um, UFO had crashed somewhere on the Cannet Chase in, in England in 1964, in February or March. And so myself and a colleague back in England at the time, in 1996, when uh, we began to seriously look into this story, we started putting ads in local newspapers and, and magazines and being interviewed on the radio, asking if anybody recalled this incident, which was at the time, of course, was like 22 years before. If they knew anything about it, can they come forward and tell us what they knew, etc., etc. Well, a few people did come forward, had a few recollections, and the, the most interesting guy was a chap named Harold South. And Harold had actually been driving across the Cannock Chase on the day in question and came across this military cordon and police cordon who told him to go back um, and find an alternative route across the forest. And he, instead, what he did, he parked about a quarter of a mile, half a mile up the road and pulled into by the trees and then got out of his car and crept through the trees to see what all the fuss was about. And that's when he he saw this small triangular thing being loaded aboard a military transport vehicle from a, a clearing in the forest. And he went home and basically it seems that somebody must have seen him because maybe it was through his license plate on the car, that's what he speculated, but uh, he had a camera with him. He always carried a camera. He was a hardened sort of train railway enthusiast, so anywhere he'd go when he saw trains, he would always take photographs of him, or of them, I should say. And when he got home, uh, the police knocked on the door and demanded his camera and confiscated the film and basically told him not to talk about this particular incident. And he didn't until he, he saw this um, advert that we'd placed in the newspapers and the interviews we'd done. Well, we went to see him on one particular morning and we phoned him from my house to say we were on our way. By the time we arrived, he was quite reluctant to speak to us. And we asked what was wrong and he... He was kind of, he didn't really want to say much to start with, and then he kind of opened up a little bit and said that in between us phoning and us arriving, he got a phone call from the Ministry of Defence warning him not to talk with us. Now, of course, you know, you think, well, is the guy genuine? Is he on the level? Is he just, you know, sort of uh, a fantasist or whatever, or a hoaxer? And in England, uh, you have a system kind of similar to the one over here where you can dial 1471 and it gives the last incoming number of the dialer and sure enough there was a number and it was sure enough it was a military operator that um, covered central England and whose job it was to channel um, phone calls from military establishments to members of the general public or outside of the military branches and the reason was so that if for example somebody dialed the number back they wouldn't get an internal number um, from the base they'd be channeled through the operator and it's just a way of preventing, you know, uncleared people from getting internal extension numbers, etc. And finally, after speaking to the operator, after about 10 minutes, she, we persuaded to put us through to the original office where the call came from. It came from an office called the Ministry of Defence Guard Service at a, at a military base called Whittington Barracks. And the person who answered the phone denied being the person who called and said didn't know anything about it. But the important thing was we were able to verify that in the short period between us leaving my house and getting to his house, he did get this phone call. And this, of course, set off all sorts of alarm bells with us, the fact that 
it seemed far too coincidental that this now elderly guy in his 70s who'd seen this weird triangular-shaped thing recovered by the military back in 64, that he should be getting a phone call warning him not to talk to us only 20 minutes after we put the phone down on him to drive mm. over. And, you know, this made us wonder, was it his phone being monitored? Was it ours? Was it both? But clearly there seemed to be some sort of monitoring program going on. And, of course, as I mentioned in the book, the important thing is that if this was just some sort of military device that crashed 22 years ago then and today 33 years ago as it would be now um surely that wouldn't still be on the secrets list you know two three decades on it seems whatever came down was more significant hence the the still ongoing surveillance so that was kind of like a weird and slightly ominous um case that suggested that we were being watched as well possibly as the witness and you're thinking that it's pretty unlikely it would have been his telephone but yeah i mean we thought about that because you know would they have just kept his phone being monitored for 20 years in the event he ever told anyone i think that's (laughs) less less likely i think more likely is the fact that it's the people in the subject being watched and then when perhaps because we'd spoke to him several occasions beforehand so that would have given the authorities ample time to find out who he was and if there were records on him to say yeah this guy was involved in this case and if he decides to talk to them, then we'll give him a call. And I think that probably is what happened, that it was our phone being watched or monitored. And then then when he makes this call and we speak to him, then the, you know, they start checking to find out who he is. And I think that's probably what happened. Well, that's, is there anything else that comes to mind? We've got about two minutes before we take a break. Has anybody ever, like, approached you that identified themselves as an agent or gave you any warnings or anything like that? No, I've, people have asked me that often. I've never been kind of threatened by any men in black types of su- as such. I have actually had a couple of interviews um, with British authorities, one um, with representative special branch, which is like an intelligence arm of the police force, asking about UFO, UFO investigations and why, for example, I was looking into a place called Porton Down in Wiltshire in England, well, uh, Porton Down was a, or is a biological and chemical defense establishment, and there were stories about alien bodies supposedly being stored there in 1974 from a UFO crash. And I began tracking down people who worked at Porton Down in 74, uh, retired scientists, Ministry of Defense scientists, and asked them if anybody knew about this case. And as it transpired, nobody actually did. But I got actually questioned by, about this, saying, you know, why are you tracking down and interviewing and phoning retired Ministry of Defence scientists and you know I, I said honestly I said there's this story during the rounds now about a UFO crash in North Wales in 74 and according to this former British Army source the alien bodies were taken to Porton Down so I feel you know it's a legitimate area of research to contact people who were at Porton Down in 74 and worked there to see if they know anything about it and the response was okay thanks very much that's all we needed to know you know there was no sort of ominous threats it was just you know and I, actually I can understand that you know, it's kind of like if somebody starts phoning up retired scientists who worked at Wright-Patterson, then some of those scientists might contact the security people at the base and say, you know, this, this person keeps phoning me up and pestering me with questions. Can you find out who he is? Um, and I think that's probably what happens. So sometimes I think there are, you know, reasonable reasons, I guess. You can understand why, you know, if people start asking questions about military personnel and retired people and they want to know why you're doing it. Sure. Well, you mentioned the men in black a second ago, so what I'm going to do is, uh, after we take a break, I'm going to jump in and uh, 
uh, ask you a little bit about that and what you talk about in your book. Right now, Joe is going to take us out with some music from the Majestic 12, and we'll be back with live from Roswell in about five minutes. Welcome back once again to Live from Roswell, broadcasting on the Paranormal Radio Network, live from sunny Roswell, New Mexico. I'm Guy Malone. We're talking to Nick Redfern tonight, who's the author of On the Trail of Saucer Spies. It's a book about how various government agencies, not just the U.S. and not just the U.K., really go out of the way and make efforts to research UFO researchers, people who are involved in researching UFO crashes, people who are witnesses, people who are abductees that Nick has uncovered in his book and in his research over several years a lot of the uh, documentation of how the, the government is actually watching you or watching I or watching anybody that's seriously public or involved in this. And uh, the, how long has that book been out already, Nick? Um, it's been about 15 months, I think, something like that. Okay. So you've got... Uh, you probably, once you publish something like that, I'm going to guess that you get people that email or send you other things yeah. that add to your work, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, material come forward since publication of the book, you know, people talking about how they've been visited or, in some cases, you know, be warned off cases and incidents and from investigating them. And we've also seen a number of official files um, further file surface since publication of the book showing how government agencies um, watch people in the subject. Um, just recently, for example, um, the Australian government released some intelligence files about how they'd secretly been watching um, Australian UFO researchers from pretty much the, foot, the early 50s onwards. And a whole range of files were, were open, and you can now find them um, online at the, the government's archives website, or if you go to my um, Source of Spies uh, blog, you'll find there's a story on there about the files. If you just type in Australia on the search engine, you'll, you'll find the details. That's so, part of what got me wanting to talk to you this week, is that you've released, kind of as a supplement to the book, rather than um, doing a live, or rather than doing yeah. a second book, or do you, do you think you want to do a second edition? Um, well, I don't know if I'll do a second edition. I might update the first. I think, you know, there's, there's the danger, or not so, much, not so much a danger, but there's the thing that if you kind of just do a follow-up book, it's, it's very, very similar to the mm -hmm. first one. So I think rather than just do something that's okay, it's in the cases, but it's almost identical in style, I think what I'd perhaps prefer to do at some point maybe would be to update the original edition with some of the most significant material that's come forward since publication, and you know that would come forward over the next year or two as well. So, so in the meantime, before mm. you do that, you have started work on a new blog. Mm -hmm. That I've also got that book linked from livefromroswell.com on uh, your new blog on saucer spies. Okay, it's the saucer spies dot blogspot dot com, I believe. Right? Okay, make it easier. I just mentioned people. It's linked from livefromroswell.com, and if you're listening to an archive, um, that will always be my past shows archive linked. But you are uh, updating the blog right now with new stories as they come forward, sounds like, right? Yeah, that's right. I've set up the blog basically because this is sort of very much an ongoing thing, you know, with breaking stories and new files surfacing, showing how the government watches us. 
so I thought, you know, rather than just have people have access to the book, um, you know, obviously people want to know what's coming since then. So I figured the best thing to do would be have one kind of centralized outlet that would allow people to see the latest news, files, data, etc., on, you know, who's being watched and when they were watched and why and, you know, how many, how lengthy their surveillance files were, etc. So that's what I've tried to do with this blog is to just have it sort of dedicated to, to the book itself and, you know, rather than just have it as a general UFO blog. And you mentioned already the one that you had at the, uh, on the Australian government. Yeah, that one's on there. If people just go to the blog, type in Australia, I think there's only actually the one story on there, I think, that deals with Australia, so that'll throw it up right away. Well, you said the government released files. Did they just sort of randomly do that willingly? Oh, enough time has gone by here, we're going to release these to the public, or was that like well, in response? Well, I mean, sometimes to... it does work like that. For example, with the British government, they used to have something called the 30-year ruling, which meant that all files, regardless of classification, had to be withheld from the public from, for a minimum of 30 years. Now, after that 30-year period, government declassification teams would go through the documents and decide what could or couldn't be released. It wouldn't be based upon whether someone had filed a request. It would just be, you know, they would just go through them. And that's how a number of UFO files did begin to surface. However, recently, a couple of years ago, the British government passed the, their own version of the U.S. Freedom of Information Act, which allows members of the public to request specific files rather than have to wait for the declassification teams to go through them. So that's brought forth a number of files. And that was a similar situation in the U.S. when the Freedom of Information Act was passed over here, uh, when people began requesting access to, you know, just countless people in the UFO field who, you know, were no longer with us, who passed away. And that's one of the stipulations. If you don't, if you're not filing for your own file, you can only file for somebody who's already dead. You know, I couldn't file for your file. You couldn't file for Stan Friedman's or whoever. Um, but you could file for somebody like Leonard Stringfield, who's, who's already died. So that, that's the way it works. That is not a name I know, by the way. I know you'd mentioned him. Stringfield. Yes. Yeah. Well, Leonard Stringfield... Um, was a UFO researcher. He did a lot of research, wrote a couple of books back in the 50s, and he wrote one called Situation Red, a good book back in the late 70s, which kind of detailed all, all his UFO investigations. And he wrote various status reports, as he called them, on crashed UFOs. Uh, I think the first one was published in 78, and the last one in 94, the year he died. And they're basically like collections of information and data that have been given to him on crashed UFOs. And... Um, Certain portions of his FBI file have been declassified into the to the public domain. We've got, I think, about 20 pages or something like that. And you said that there's also FBI files on the UFO researchers like uh, Stan Friedman. Yeah, well, Stan himself tried to get hold of his FBI file uh. <laughs> and actually got a denial, I think, at first that there was a file. Um, then found out that there was, but the FBI wouldn't tell him either the classification of the file, i.e. secret or top secret, wouldn't tell him how lengthy the file was or, or otherwise. So that's one of the bizarre things about this subject as well, not just the fact that there might be files on people, but actually getting information from the, from the relevant agencies about the nature of the file if they decide not to declassify them. You know, it's, it's one of these weird situations where you, can, you may get admittance from the FBI that they've got a file, but they won't tell you, the person requesting it, what's in your own file. That's kind of like a, a strange situation. 
So how easy or hard is it? Could could I or pretty much anyone listen to the program? What yeah. channels would they have to go through to even find out whether they could get it? Mm. Well, if you go to the, if you're interested in seeing if the FBI have a file on you, and certainly the FBI have files on countless UFO researchers, so the FBI is a good place to start. If you go to their website, which is fbi.gov, and you click on the research section on the left-hand side, it then gives you another link which shows your which lists the guidelines of how to um, file a Freedom of Information request and what the FBI requires of you. Now, just to give you an example, over the years, the FBI has declassi de excuse me, declassified its files on various people in the UFO subjects, such as George Adamski, uh, George Van Tassel, two contactees, some files on the old uh, one of the other contactees, Daniel Fry, and also George Hunt Williamson, uh, files on Gray Barker, and um, Albert Bender, who were two people involved in the early years of Men in Black research. Um, as I said, Stan Friedman tried to get his file. We have some files on Leonard Stringfield, some on Larry Bryant, um, various reviews, uh, book reviews that the FBI did. They did a kind of a lengthy review of one of Frank Edwards's early UFO books, uh, Flying Source of Serious Business. Um, and this is just like the tip of the iceberg. Bill Moore, who co-wrote the first book on Roswell, he managed to get portions, at least, of his FBI file, not all of it. Um, so, you know, again, the, the FBI is definitely a place for people to start if they feel that um, you know, they may have been watched at some point. And all these files I just mentioned I, I included in the Source of Spies book so people can see how extensive mm -hmm. the files are and, and how and why the government put them together. We're talking with Nicholas Redfern, author of On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, and you can email me at talktome, T-A-L-K-T-O-M-E, at livefromroswell.com to participate. And on the livefromroswell.com website, there's also a toll-free number. We'll put you on the air. But feel free to join in and ask a question of Nick. I've got a few of my own still um, that I'll keep this going on, but you're welcome to come in and join the conversation and either criticize or complain and, fi and find <laughs> out... <laughs> find out what Nick's been up to or, or challenge him or affirm him on what we're talking about. But um, earlier on, you were, like, talking about how there are files on the older contactees, mm. Adamski, Van Tassel, mm -hmm. people, I guess, you classify as 50s and 60s and stuff like that. Yeah, but exactly. You were also saying that's where the original Men in Black reports seem to come from, too, is back in that era, right? Yeah, I mean, the men in, for the most part, although there were a few kind of weird Men in Black type characters running around in the late 40s, it kind of really kicked off um, sort of 53, 54 with um, a man named Albert Bender. And that's a name that actually isn't that well known in ufology today, apart from, you know, with people who either were around back then or that people have kind of like a historical interest in the subject as well. He's, his name's sort of been lost to the fog of time for a lot of newcomers to the subject. But Bender, in the early 50s, set up this organization called the International Flying Saucer um, bureau, and basically it was a sort of a network of people all around the world, you know, who would correspond largely, I suppose, back then by mail and telephone, um, and share reports and publish their own newsletters. And there would be um, representatives of the group in all sorts of different countries all around the world, and it, and it really was kind of a big network. And Bender claimed that not long after setting this organisation up that he had several run-ins run -ins with the FBI asking questions about the, the nature of the group and what its purpose was, what Bender was doing, why he was looking into these things. And then he claimed to have 
a weird men in black style encounter in his house and it almost had sort of like paranormal overtones to it with these uh, sort of shadowy black figures in hats kind of like a classic men in black scenario materializing in his room and he felt sick and ill and dizzy and almost like passed out so, so he almost had like as i said a cult or supernatural overtones to it but bender's story was told in 1956 in a book written by a UFO researcher named Gray Barker that was called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And this <laughs> it was Barker's book that really kicked off the whole um, Men in Black, I won't say mythology, but the story, if you like, and the history and the culture and everything else that surrounds it. And so what I did, bearing in mind that both... Well, so actually, Albert Bender's still alive, I think. And he was, I think he's like in his 80s, probably late 80s, even possibly early 90s, and still lives somewhere in California. But... But Barker died a long time ago, I think in the mid-80s. And so I, see, I saw if I could get hold of uh, Barker's FBI file and got said portions of it at least. And what's interesting about the file, and I've reproduced the, the declassified sections in the book, is that the, the FBI's files show that none other than J. Edgar Hoover himself actually ordered one of his agents to go to a bookshop and get hold of a copy of the book. They knew too much about flying saucers because... Various people, members of the U.S. public, had contacted the FBI to say, you know, we've been reading or hearing about these stories about guys in dark black suits running around and threatening UFO researchers. Do they work for the FBI or who are they? We'd like to know. And Hoover wanted to know as well. He realized that they weren't his agents, um, but he wanted to find out who they belonged to. And, you know, to, to get a hold of official FBI documents with... J. Edgar Hoover's name attached to them saying, you know, you will go out and get a hold of this book. They knew too much about flying saucers at the earliest opportunity. And then to find out, you know, it was sitting on Hoover's bookshelf. That's sort of kind of surreal and intriguing that one of the most powerful intelligence agencies in the world not only took the subject seriously, but was covertly getting hold of books on the subject and trying to determine for themselves who the men in black were. But I think the more intriguing thing is that whoever the, the men in black are, it seems they defied identification by the, the mainstream intelligence agencies, which suggests to me that some of them, I think, are you know, people sort of deeply buried in the intelligence world that go out and either threaten and warn personnel people or witnesses or collect information and, again, you know, warn people not to talk about it. But I think that the fact that they're able to evade detection and identification by the FBI even, that suggests, you know, they're, they're sort of very, very deeply buried in the, in the intelligence world. And do you think that there is anything you mentioned from the book, um, anything occult or paranormal about them? Well, you know, I mean, some of the reports you see, it's, it's clear to me, I actually got hold of some documentation showing that there's no doubt that in some cases these people do work for Air Force intelligence. And I think what they've done in the past They've kind of exploited the men in black mythology by actually dressing up in black suits and ties and putting on like a weird threatening atmosphere and air because if people then talk about it, they look stupid and credulous. And I think that works in the favor of the intelligence community. You know, if somebody from the military turns up on somebody's doorstep and ask for information about a UFO encounter and they're dressed in their official uniform, it's quite easy to probably to track them down. If they turn up in a black suit and put on this vaguely intimidating atmosphere and it creates this, I guess, image of the men in black, 
mm. people just think, oh, you know, you've been reading too many UFO books and watching too many films. And that does act as a good cover. However, in saying that, there are other cases, a lot, for example, uncovered and investigated by John Keel, where the men in black seem far stranger. That, and I mean, some people have said that some of these MIBs even appear alien themselves, you know, trying to disguise themselves as, as humans with badly fitting wigs and makeup to hide the fact that they've got sort of <laughs> skin the color of paper, you know, just white skin and very, very short, like five feet tall or whatever, and they don't seem completely accustomed with our, our ways, etc. So I think it seems to me that the MIBs fall into two categories. You have the military ones where the military actually poses as the MIBs to throw people off the trail. But you also have these more bizarre cases, uh, which, if true, um, you know, suggest that maybe some of our alien visitors actually closely look like us to the point where, to a degree at least, you know, they can, they can walk amongst us and uh, maybe they're responsible for some of these reports as well. And from what you've researched, do you actually consider those reports credible? Yeah, I think, you know, when you begin to look all around the world and you find that people have these little weird stories to tell and that, you know, they have no, they're not looking for publicity and, you know, somebody in the English city of, I don't know, Leicester, shall we say, doesn't know the person from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they tell similar stories about them, these MIBs knocking on the front door and not being accustomed with our ways and our traits and, you know, looking kind of strange and you know you have to then begin to realize that a pattern's emerging where it seems that there are these covert people whatever their point of origin going around in black suits intensely interested in knowing what people in the ufo subject think about the subject or you know how deeply we're investigating things and what are you planning to do with this information are you going to publish it and, you know giving out kind of veiled warnings along the lines of well it wouldn't be a good idea if you published this, car accidents happen, you know, that sort of thing. That's the sort of thing oh. we get. We don't get a lot of, you know, unexplained immediate deaths or direct threats. It's almost like an intimidation or kind of putting an idea in a person's mind without actually coming out and saying it, um, which I guess, you know, could be is more logical if, it, if this was the intelligence community. You know, if there was any, ever any backlash, they could say, well, you know, we didn't actually outright threaten anyone. We just, you know, we kind of put the thoughts out there, so. yeah. um, which is almost as bad. But, uh, you know, from a legal loophole, if you like, I suppose that may be uh, possibly one of the reasons. But for me, one uh, that was obviously American-based, everything with Gray Barker and uh, Albert Bender and the FBI. But one of the most intriguing cases I uncovered that, conclusively proves who some of these men in black are, was um, a British report from 1962, and I interviewed a woman named Anne Henson, who told me how she had seen this, she'd woken up in the middle of the night in 62, I think it was August, and looked out of the bedroom window, didn't really know why she did this, and saw this strange light hovering over a hill adjacent to the farm that she lived on at the time, mm. and this actually this object, whatever it was, came back several nights, not repeatedly every night, but several nights over the course of several weeks. And she contacted her nearby Royal Air Force Base in England and said, you know, I've been watching this strange object making all sorts of weird movements in the early hours of the morning. Do you know what it was? And she didn't get a reply, at least not um, a reply in the form of a letter. But a couple of weeks later, she had this sort of slow banging on the front door and opened the door, and there was this guy there in a black suit, black tie, black hat, even a black car. 
a you know, classic man in black and said, you know, I'm responding to your inquiry about this encounter that you had in the middle of the night. And, you know, she presumed it was from this particular Air Force base, invited him in, was a little bit like a cross between excited and also intimidated that, you know, this guy had turned up, but he wasn't in a uniform and he looked a little bit ominous. And she related to me how he'd spoken to her and asked for all the details and asked to see the bedroom where she'd seen this thing and could he look out the window, etc., etc. So she said, yes, that's fine. And then he sat down with her in the living room and said, you know, it wouldn't be a good idea for you to talk about this because everybody's going to think you're crazy. You know, there wasn't a threat. It was just instilling, you know, the idea. It probably wouldn't be a good idea to talk about it. And so that was the end of the story. He left never came back again and of course this is like this is like a typical um, classic men in black type encounter well because Anne was still alive and that's a real name by the way Anne Henson um, because she was still alive um, you know I was able to interview her quite extensively and find out the name of the Royal Air Force Base she'd reported it to and then what I did I went to the British government's National Archives and went through all the files from that particular Air Force Base for that year to see if there was anything in there. And sure enough, there was actually like an eight-page intelligence report on Anne's sighting. And it identified that the, the man who, um, who had travelled to her house and interviewed her was actually a sergeant with a division of the British Royal Air Force called the Provost and Security Services. And the Provost and Security Services are like a British equivalent of, over here, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, the AFOSI. And they deal with intelligence issues and espionage issues and things like that. So they're, they're kind of like the James Bonds of the British Royal Air Force. And this file conclusively proved that that's who this particular man in black was. And I think because we've now got several other reports where the, the files have been declassified on other cases where the Provost and Security Services sent guys out to the homes of members of the general public, I think... You know, we can draw a parallel over here as well, that almost certainly a lot of the American reports as well probably originate with the U.S. equivalents of some of these intelligence arms of the Air Force that turn up, as I said, in civilian clothing and, you know, make these comments about, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't really talk about this. And I think that's where a lot of the mythology stems from. So I think, you know, we, we are actually on our way to identifying at least some of who these people are. So you actually got uh, a confirmed report then? Yes, like I got saying. the entire report, which anyone can now view. It's now available at the National Archives in um, a place called Kew, K-E-W, just outside London. And in the book, it's got the file reference number. And if you want it, you can order that file um, online. You can go to the National Archives website and order it from them. Uh, I'm not sure what it costs to, to do that, but um, you can order the, the files online now. Yeah, but you've got an, uh, an archived actual document that says yeah. they sent this fellow out by yeah. name. Yeah. But it oh, corresponds yeah. her story that he was in black rather than wearing a military outfit or identifying himself. But no, I know the file doesn't say I turned up in a black suit. But you I believe mean, her story and you connect the two that he actually Yeah, because, went out I mean, she related the right. story wow. to me before this file surfaced, and she had no reason to say he wasn't in uniform. And the interesting thing is that the Provost and Security Services, because of the nature of what they do, they don't necessarily, because it's covert espionage work, they obviously don't turn up in full, you know, colonel gear or whatever. You know, they do, they often sit in the audiences at, for example, peace 
rallies and things like that just dressed in t-shirts and jeans because they don't want to yeah. give away who they are so you know that, we'll that talk does more make about sense. that after the break i really okay. want to know because you know they show up at conferences and you've said stuff like that and that there's also phone tapping and yeah. stuff going on yeah. we'll be back after this uh eight minute break with nick okay. redfern and if you've got some time to kill you can go on live from roswell.com or send me an email and we'll pose your question to nick as well back in a few minutes with live from roswell Welcome back to Live from Roswell. It's sponsored in part by AlienResistance.org, the holder of the DVDs and lectures from conferences recorded here in sunny Roswell, New Mexico, including a couple of recent lectures by our current guest, Nicholas Redburn. Redburn, sorry about that. Nick is UK-born and now a Texas resident. He's done a lot of research on crashed UFOs, and he's discussing his book right now and a more recent blog that he is running pertaining to saucer spies, which is about government surveillance of people who are involved in UFO research. The book is filled with authentic uh, government documents on things he's been able to confirm about people being spied on if they're involved in this field. And Nick gave a more detailed lecture on this topic that we're actually getting into tonight. And if you click on the DVD cover link on the top right of livefromroswell.com and want to order that DVD set, including Nick's lectures, from our 2007 Roswell UFO conference, please also send me an email saying that you're buying it based on hearing Nick tonight. And if you do that, we'll send a portion of that to Nick as a gift to help him with his continuing UFO research. Okay. And while he was here in the summertime, Nick also did a controversial lecture on an alternative view of the Roswell crash, and that lecture is included in the DVD set also. And just a quick reminder that both myself, live from Roswell.com, and the Paranormal Radio Network are always interested in talking to you about sponsorship of our program. We have commercial packages linked from livefromroswell.com as well as from paranormalradionetwork.com. And if you tried to click on Nick's link earlier that I have on livefromroswell.com, Nick brought it to my attention, but I'd already caught it, that I had a, a dead link posted. I misspelled the word saucer. So if you're looking for his blog that uh, contains the information we're discussing tonight, you can now visit livefromroswell.com and get that again for you. But we're back with you, Nick Redfern here. Thanks for joining us and sharing with us the break. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, what we were kind of talking about was how the intelligence world secretly spies on UFO conferences yeah. and, like, send people to it. Mm -hmm. uh, go into that a little bit, please, because I think that's interesting. You and I are both attend many conferences and have seen each other there. Mm -hmm. Who else might we have seen while we're there? Yeah, that's true. Um, well, you know, I think one of the the images, I guess, of surveillance of people in the UFO subject is phone tapping, mail interference, intimidation, that sort of thing, which I'm quite sure, and as I show in the book, does go on. But there's a far easier way for government personnel to get the latest news on what the UFO community is up to, and that's simply to go along to the UFO conferences and, and hear the latest revelations. And, you know, sometimes the the easiest way is the best way. And I think that applies here. You know, you go to a lot of UFO conferences, and fortunately, you know, you don't just get to hear regurgitated information. You do get a lot of new material. And so that, you know, is an ideal uh, place or location, if you like, for these people to go along, sit in the audience, and innocently take notes or perceivedly 
innocently take notes and you know to to determine what we're up to and gauge what we've found out etc and there's no doubt whatsoever that this goes on um for example we mentioned earlier some of the contactees uh one of them being george van tassel and i got hold of van tassel's fbi file which collectively amounts to about 300 pages and oh. this includes various copies of um his self-published newsletters that he put out in the 50s and early 60s but interestingly enough it also includes various uh, lengthy reports from fbi agents who'd um again gone out covertly and sat in the audience at some of his lectures and prepared excuse me prepared extensive notes um and files that were forwarded again to j edgar hoover and there's one particularly classic example shall we say that dated from 1960 when um van tassel gave a lecture in denver colorado which again was attended by the fbi and and the fbi agents um review for want of a better term of the conference has now been declassified and it makes it very very clear that the guy had sat in the audience he may well even have had some sort of covert taping device because the review that he did is so extensive and detailed it seems that you know unless he was really really good at shorthand and writing quick that you know he simply wouldn't have been able to get all the information down but certainly this was one case where you know we can say for certain that an FBI agent in a covert fashion sat in the audience at the UFO conference to listen to what was said and also on the issue of the contactees the FBI's declassified its surveillance file on George Adamski probably the most famous of all the contactees and Adamski's FBI file is about 80 to 100 pages in length and one of the entries in the file is a, again an official review of a lecture that um Adamski gave in New Zealand in the late 1950s um so again this demonstrates that not only were uh, and still are intelligence agencies monitoring people in the US at conferences actually you know traveling around the world or getting data from around the world and uh, the most recent reports of either attendance at conferences or intelligence reports being put together date from i think about 92 and 93 um i got a report from the defense intelligence agency showing how they'd sent personnel to attend um a lecture of the um society for scientific exploration that was held i think it was held in munich in 93 and various topics were on the agenda including crop circles life after death esp and again um a full report was prepared on this particular case I uh, sorry on this particular conference and you know the the subjects that are under discussion I also got hold of a again from the DIA um a document concerning a conference that was held in China in 1992 so again this is firm evidence that things are being looked at quite literally on a worldwide perspective when it comes to conferences on the subject and what we're talking about and you know are we giving out any new data and new revelations and then of course this is going back up the chain of command so you know again it's it's quite clear that this is um sort of one of the perfect i guess routes for the intelligence world to follow you know yes they monitor phones yes in some cases even monitor mail but you know these sometimes the easiest um ways and means like reading magazines books and attending conferences can be some of the most uh, popular and uh, successful in terms of getting hold of information uh, you know as we give it out they get it immediately well it seems like they're also very they're able to very easily absorb 
uh, what is being said that shapes public opinion, whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, by, I think by doing that. Yeah, I think that, that's actually a good point. I think you know when it when it comes to new material, what's being said, you know, there's there's no sort of real. Um, I guess the, the, the most important avenue, I guess, for you know judging the, the public response, etc., is how initially, at least, you know, the UFO community responds to the material. Do we ignore it? Do we take it seriously? Do we poke fun at it? You know, depending on whatever the case is. And you know, conferences and judging audience reaction is a good way to do that. And um, you know, from there, read the magazines and then keep a lookout to see if the national media picks up on it. And if they do, what are they saying about it? And, is the story getting spread far and wide, or is it just staying locally and then dying off? So, you know, I think there are a lot of offshoots from the initial investigations that these agencies follow up on. You know, it's not just a case of putting a file together on someone. It's to what extent that person might have, you know, be influencing people. That was definitely one of the concerns, um, for example, with um, some of the early contactees. I mean, many of the early contactees in the 50s claimed contact with, so-called human-looking aliens, very often with long blonde hair. And one of the overriding themes of their messages was that we should supposedly lay down our atomic weapons and all live in peace. Well, the FBI's declassified files make it very clear that this issue of aliens supposedly telling the contactees to lay down their atomic weaponry, or the governments of the world to lay down their atomic weaponry, that was one of great concern to the FBI. And the, the files make it abundantly clear that the FBI was saying to itself, you know, are these people, these contactees, if they're getting 10,000 or 20,000 or 50,000 people buying their books and they all believe that, yes, we should lay down our atomic weapons according to, you know, what these aliens are allegedly telling these people, how is that going to actually affect, you know, the way these people vote in elections? So, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, they were taking it very, very seriously. It wasn't just a case of, oh, we're watching this guy and he's writing a UFO book. They were very, very concerned how some UFO authors of, who were selling literally tens of thousands of uh, copies of their books could actually sway public opinion on political issues, not just on UFO-related news and, and stories. And that actually, that theme you talk about, mm. sort of has a modern resurgence with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer. That well, that... Mm. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at the world today, um, you know, with things like the war on terror, Iraq, etc. I think, you know, if someone were to come along and say, you know, the aliens have said we need to lay down our weapons, we need to stop fighting, etc. I'm quite sure that uh, bulky files would be opened on anyone, you know, in the UFO community who started making those sorts of claims. And more importantly, you know, if they were people of influence, um, you know, regularly on the lecture circuit, writing books and appearing in magazines. I think anything that sort of links the UFO subject with political issues or the military and that can have a, an effect on the general public, not from a UFO perspective, but from other angles, then I think, you know, inevitably people are going to be watched. I think that's just, that's just one of the hazards of modern-day society, unfortunately. Here's a question uh, just sent in to me by email from a listener that's uh, listening to us right now. It's not exactly um, on the government surveillance, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm guessing you actually would have a uh, case on this based on all your other books and research. Mm -hmm. uh, T.P. Reitzel, Reitzel is asking, uh, what's the most spectacular case of submerged flying objects, in your opinion, i.e., those objects or lights that are seen underwater? Mm. 
Um, I think one of the most interesting ones is the uh, Canadian case, the Shag Harbour one from uh, the 1960s. Um, Shag Harbour being the location in Canada where something came down um, late at night after darkness um, and was seen, I guess, manoeuvring in, in the harbour and then mo moving along the, the Canadian coastline. And this was actually the subject of a book written by Don Ledger called Dark... I think it's called Dark Object. And the important thing about this book is that it goes very, very deeply into the case. It goes into the various official files that have been declassified on the subject. And there's no doubt that you know this is a, a very, very important incident. It wasn't something just like a meteor crashing, you know, going underwater. This seems to have been something that, I won't say sort of a controlled crash, but something came down and maneuvered deep under the water off the and there was evidence of um, various investigations that undertaken at an official level and claims of cover-up and conspiracy. So I think that's an important one. Um, I've made a couple of trips to Puerto Rico looking for the, the so-called chupacabras, this weird vampire-like creature rumored to uh, roam the rainforest of Puerto Rico. And on every occasion I've been there, I've come across stories of people who said they've seen uh, large triangular-shaped UFOs actually rising up out of the oceans that surround Puerto Rico. Um, I think altogether probably three or four stories along those lines I've heard of you know people just walking along the shore or, or who live near the water and then late at night saw this jet black uh, flying triangle, huge thing sort of slowly and silently rise out of the oceans and then shoot away at high speed. So... I think there's definitely some good, strong cases there to suggest, you know, if we want to know the truth about UFOs, don't look up or don't just look up. You know, we may need to sort of look down as well. So. I think that makes, yeah, I know a lot. That, of I mean, that would make a lot of sense. You know, people say, well, you know, these UFOs, where are they? How are they able to get here so fast, etc.? Maybe they're not coming here. Maybe they are here, but just hiding out in some of the parts of the world that are more inaccessible to us. You know, I mean, it's not implausible, I don't think, the idea that an a vastly advanced intelligence could build some sort of installation very, very deeply underground to where, you know, we're just not able to go in some of these really deep trenches, you know, where we just, you know, our vehicles just won't stand the pressure, never mind the people. Um, so, you know, maybe that's that's a possibility that, yes, the UFOs are flying around, but perhaps... They're, they're based here in some fashion, possibly underground or, you know, under the water. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about, if you really uh, give a lot of credibility or at least um, research the, the underwater or underground base theory, non-human underground Well, I, I wouldn't say I so much researched it, but, you know, having come across some of these Puerto Rico stories and the, the Shag Harbor one in Canada and various other ones that I know surfaced in the early 90s um, off the coast of Iceland and, and elsewhere, I think, you know, that, again, like a lot of aspects of the UFO subject, when you see this little bit of a trend, then I think it's worth studying more. And granted, you know, I'll be honest, I haven't really delved into these stories at a great level personally, but I think there's enough material evidence there to suggest that somebody should really and, you know, see where it all leads. I think, you know, it could be a good avenue, not necessarily to identify what the UFOs are, but possibly you know, where they're going when they're not flying around our, our skies. Do you think, as far as the listener's question, uh, just curious about a spectacular case of submerged flying objects, 
Would you say that he could uh, just Google perhaps Shag Harbor and then put UFO? Oh yeah, if you go if you Google Shag Harbor UFO, you'll get all the information on Don's book Dark Object. You'll get a massive amount of case studies and, and reports, and and I think even links to some of the official documents that have now been declassified on the case as well. Oh, that's very good. That's a good answer. Uh, appreciate uh, just the extra mm-hmm. bit of info, uh, even though it was a little off. You had mentioned. Um, as far as uh, the phone tapping and mail tampering by the yeah. intel world of UFO researchers, that you could discuss some specific cases, such as uh, our friend who's been on the program, Greg Bishop. We yeah, got about well, five minutes before a break here. That would be very fascinating to give a first-hand account if you can. Yeah, sure. Well, Greg, um, Greg's a good friend of mine. Done a lot of research back in, you know, with his Excluded Middle magazine that he used to write and his Project Beta book, which I think, for me personally, is probably one of the most important. UFO books of the last few years, uh, if not of all, you know, one of the most important UFO books published ever because it shows how the government systematically basically ruined the life of a scientist, Paul Benowitz, and fed him all sorts of fake UFO stories to try and drive him crazy, which unfortunately worked, and you know, to a mental breakdown. So it's as much as like a story of scandal and how one man's life was destroyed because of his UFO pursuits. But... Um, aside from that, Greg had um, several sort of weird um, events, if you like, uh, when he was investigating and looking into um, the whole issue of, of alien abductions and corresponded with people in the field. And uh, on, on many occasions, the, the mail that was sent between him and the, the relevant abduction researchers um, was actually opened, uh, had been opened officially, or well, not necessarily officially, but it would be made clear to Greg that at some point between the mail being sent to him and the relevant researchers and, and then sent back to him, the replies, that they'd been opened by someone, resealed, but done so in a fashion that it made it very, very clear to the recipients, in this case, <laughs> Greg, that this was being done. And I think my interpretation, at least, would be that this was like some sort of in- intimidation, you know, that to show, to demonstrate that, hey, we're watching you, we know what you're up to, we know who you're speaking to, and here's the evidence because, you know, a day before you get your mail, we read it, we slice open the envelope, tear it or whatever, and then just, you know, fix it back together with scotch tape. Um, and again, I think this was done like, kind of like a psychological, uh, like a psychological approach for, you know, trying to freak Greg out or spook him a little bit, but um, I mean that that happened to Greg on a lot of occasions, and specifically, um, you know, when he was corresponding with people in the abduction field. And um, you know, I think to this day, Greg doesn't necessarily know why it was being done or why he was, you know, he was um, kind of you know, prof- profiled as a person who who suffered this. Uh, you know these letter openings, but for some reason he seemed to have attracted the attention of of somebody in the official world. And I know he's had uh, you know other sort of bizarre experiences, and of course you know writing a book about how the intelligence world basically destroyed the life of Paul Benowitz, then you are going to attract official attention. And you know Greg's good friends with people like Bill Moore, who wrote co-wrote the Roswell incident. He's been at the forefront of a lot of intelligence-based studies over the years, and yeah, again, I think when you're writing books, you're publishing magazines, doing blogs, and people in the official world know you can get the stories out, and you have an audience, then that concerns them. And I think they do this kind of stuff to try and spook people 
because I think in some cases it works if these people are, you know, a little bit of a nervous type mind. I think to Greg's credit, you know, he's not someone who who worries overly about that. You know, be, I mean, it's like if it happened to me, I, you know, I'd be looking for the answers. I'd be looking to get the person that did it, you know, to track them down and expose them and tell everybody about it. I wouldn't be sort of quaking at the knees, you know, hiding behind the front door. And I think but some people would. And I think that sort of intimidation of letter opening and making it very, very clear, I think that works in some cases depending on the character of the person who it's being done to. Well, I immediately recognized what you were talking about. Oh, we're on the last one minute left. and okay. But uh, I've received more than a couple pieces of mail in mm. my years of doing this that were opened or mm. they're resealed in another bag. Mm. And when we first began sending out DVDs from our conferences uh, several years ago, I would say that I've had at least a dozen people write us and say that it was opened and resealed Oh, and wow. or they could tell the package had been tampered with, and they just wanted us to know. Wow. So um, even though it hasn't left me feeling intimidated or mm. anything like that, I have to say I'm one of the people that's had a little bit of that happen oh, as that's well. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, not, we it's not good, obviously, no. but it's interesting that parallels very, very closely what happened to Greg's. So. Yeah, but what we're sending out is pretty consistent. So I guess once they'd searched it a dozen times and yeah. found anything yeah. new. Um, it kind of went away or it quit for a while. I know uh, when we come back after this break, I'll ask you uh, to go into a little detail on what you've got up on your blogs right now, some of the recent articles posted. Okay. Let us know what's hot and new since you published your book on Alrighty. government surveillance of UFO people. Okay. And I'll give kudos to my MySpace Features Artist of the Week, Majestic 12. Joe's going to play us one more song, and we'll be back with Live from Roswell in about five minutes. a book about government surveillance of ufologists. He was giving us a couple of examples, uh, both of people he knows. And I do want to mention that our own, very own producer, Joe Montaldo, of this program, he does have a story about being told what he could and could not say in Roswell by mm. someone. If we can get him on, maybe we'll hear about that. Or if you know Joe, drag that story out of him. And also, if as a listener, if you think you've ever had an experience where someone was discouraging you either from sharing a UFO experience or sharing your uh, research and investigation, email it to me at talk to me at live from Roswell.com, as well as if you have a question for Greg, or I'm sorry, for Nick during this last couple minutes. Uh, do you remember what we were talking about, Nick, where you could just pick up with that? Yeah, basically, you know, we were talking about, um, for example, a friend of mine, Greg, or friend of ours, Greg Bishop, who has experienced a lot of weirdness because I think he, he tends to delve into the, you know, the official world. And I said a lot of mail excuse me, mail interference, for example, and weird hang-up phone calls. And I think collectively this all amounts to sort of like a psychological attempt at intimidation, which fortunately, for, you know, with Greg's character, doesn't really work. But I think there are people out there who it does work for. Um, one of the interesting parallels is that Greg's book, Project Beta, actually focuses quite deeply um, on the whole issue of alien abductions. And... Um, the on my on the, in my uh, on the trailer source of spies book it talks uh, quite deeply i've got a whole chapter in there on the way abductees have been monitored by very often the u.s air force um, particularly the afosi the office of special investigations and um, i've uncovered cases going back till at least the early 1970s where in a number of cases of what the air force perceived to be very very credible abduction accounts they paid stealthy covert visits to the homes of the people involved and 
ask them actually you know quite openly you know would you be willing to talk to us about a project that we're working on that relates to this issue of members of the public being kidnapped and they one of the witnesses told me or one of the people who experienced uh, this uh, interview by the air force told me that she when this was mentioned to her things like abductions were never actually mentioned it was always kidnappings and it was made very clear to her by the Air Force that the, the military, particularly the intelligence divisions of the Air Force, were very, very concerned by alien abductions and were trying to get a handle on what was going on and why this was going on and who was doing it. And she told me how the, these two Air Force personnel had visited her at her home and actually spoke quite openly about her case, making it very, very clear that they knew all about one particular UFO experience that she'd had when she'd been driving home late at night and the car engine had stalled and <clears throat> she'd been taken aboard some sort of craft and in the aftermath of it she started having weird dreams like apocalyptic dreams of nuclear attack and environmental breakdown and biological viruses outbreak breaking out across the world and um, what was kind of intriguing about this particular investigation was that the Air Force guys that interviewed her told her one very very I guess in some respects kind of um, ominous story that the Air Force was investigating the idea that the whole point behind ha alien abductions wasn't some sort of like a hybrid collection of eggs and DNA and sperm etc in the kind of the scenario that we're, we're used to but the Air Force actually told her that these creatures aren't aliens but described them as being some sort of almost like a demonic entity whose, whose role was to steal human souls and recycle them for, for their own purposes, almost like they were farming our souls. Um, and she told me personally, I, I met her on several occasions, her name was Tammy, or still is, her name still is Tammy, I should say. Um, and she related to me this story that was deeply disturbing to her, and even more so because it was coming from the Air Force, at Kirtland Air Force Base, I think in 73, and apparently they told her they had this little project going on and they were approaching a number of people that they knew had had these experiences. They didn't really explain how they knew certain people had had the experience, but evidently they did. And they said there was deep concern in the official world that we'd been almost lied to in almost like a Trojan horse situation of allowing these beings to enter our world and interact with us, thinking that they were alien, but that they were something far stranger and that they were almost like farming or milking our souls in some way. Um, You're actually working on a book or something related to that. Or yeah, I am. That it's basically an outgrowth of the initial, not just this investigation with this woman, but um, of other cases as well, that where there seems to have been some sort of organization within the military, like kind of like a think tank organization from at least the 70s through to at least the 90s, and I'm not entirely sure beforehand or after, I'm still doing the research, but also concluded that whatever the, the truth is behind the UFO mystery, that it had the ominous origins and you know, an ominous intent, that a game was focused, seemed to be focused around life after death and manipulating the human soul and the human life force and almost like using it as kind of like a, like a battery you know, like a, an energy that we, we were literally being farmed upon death for the for our soul's energy, which is you know a highly controversial scenario. Um, now, you know, I I would be the I'd be the first to admit I don't know how true or not 
you know, this might even be. But for me, at least, the intriguing thing was that it seems that definitely in the 70s, there were personnel in the U.S. military who were clandestinely traveling to the homes of American citizens who they knew had had this experience and, and not threatening them. That, that's the thing I want to stress. Mm-hmm. It was actually soliciting their help and assistance and saying, you know, would you remain silent if you, if we ask you a few questions? You know, we don't want people running to the media and friends and family, but we know something weird's going on. We know you're somehow involved, and all we want is your help to try and explain to us what you recalled and what happened in the aftermath. And they asked her all sorts of bizarre questions, which suggested that there was clearly like a history to this. They, they knew or they had other cases on record that paralleled hers because of the questions like, did you dream about nuclear war or envi- environmental collapse? Did you dream about biological viruses breaking out? Did you have any dreams about life after death? Or did you ever feel in the aftermath of the abduction that you had an out-of-body experience? So they were clearly working with, I wouldn't necessarily say cases, but certain set questions that were already in place. And, of course, if they've got these set questions, that would suggest they'd already got similar answers from other people. So, you know, that was an indication that the official world monitors abductees as well. So, you know, I think that's another angle that um, demonstrates how how deeply and, you know, how widespread this surveillance goes. It's, it's not just those of us who do research. It's actually the witnesses and the, the participants as well. That's pretty interesting. Mm. I mean, obviously they're taking that theory seriously, at least they were in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the important thing to remember is, as I point out in the book, the, the Air Force people were honest enough to tell Tammy that there was some sort of like an abduction investigation program going on, and various people in the project had come to differing conclusions. Some of them had come to this conclusion of, like, soul-stealing. Others thought it was genuine aliens um, just harvesting DNA. Others thought, you know, was it time travelers? So there was, you know, it wasn't like the project was geared to this or to that. It, it literally was that you had maybe 20 or 30 people in the project and, you know, being human beings, human beings have different views on, you know, on evidence, on, you know, it's like a, a jury in a court case, in a murder case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'd come to differing conclusions or at least, you know, were looking in different directions. And apparently this kind of soul-stealing one was one that the military was looking at and... Um, I mean, I've come across information since to suggest that this angle was being further followed, at least in the 80s. I'm not sure about the 90s, but it was definitely followed in the early to mid-80s, um, again, with the idea that, you know, we were the Earth was basically some sort of gigantic farm and the kind of the life we live now is the, the equivalent of the cows grazing on the field and the, <laughs> the afterlife is kind of when the cows go off to the slaughterhouse, which is a a bit ominous, and I mean, I stress this isn't my theory, this is coming from the abductees who said that they were visited, you know, in a clandestine fashion so, by the by the military. Ooh, fascinating. Mm. Um, you are, earlier we mentioned that you know our our show's producer, Joe Montaldo, mm. Paranormal Radio, and Nick Carr. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you guys have met, but um, he did give me permission just a second ago uh, to mention that, because I knew this story from talking to him on the phone, but he has views on the alien agendas that mm-hmm. he has expressed before, that he has come to in both in writing and on his own. And he did tell me, and it's okay to say it, that he has been asked more than one time not to talk about his conclusions mm. on the 
Plus, uh, a little bit before, uh, earlier this year, he had guys show up at his work and tell him not to speak about it on the air. Oh, wow. And uh, I asked him, was he going to talk about it in Roswell on his, uh, when he did a lecture here? Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually did not speak about it while he was in Roswell. He, okay. For whatever reason or whatever intent, bully or intimidation or common sense, not wanting to pick a fight mm-hmm. with people that have been that persistent in telling him not to share mm-hmm. something, uh, he just says, point blank, yeah, I did stop talking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, we may have some records from Joe on a deathbed confessional or something like that. <laughs> well, uh, that's a long way away. Yep. <laughs> ah. I sure hope so. <laughs> I sure hope so. Um, where, uh, before we finish off, I just want to remind people uh, of two things. Uh, one not related to you, Nick. I did mention earlier, and I think it's worth mentioning again, that on livefromroswell.com, in big yellow text near the top, I've got a, a solicitation, more or less, from Mark Davenport, who's a longtime UFO researcher. He is in ill health, and just to help with his bills, he's attempting to sell his big library of UFO research books. He's guessing the market value is around $5,000. But if you would like to email me at talk to me at live from Roswell, I will forward you the email that he sent out uh, requesting people to reforward the email and along with several attachments of a huge library. You got a few thousand books, a few, uh, few thousand dollars, or need some books, Nick? Um, I haven't got a few thousand dollars, but I wouldn't mind a few more books. <laughs> <laughs> no. But no, if anyone's li- interested, the if, life if anyone's of the UFO author isn't a rich one, and uh, despite what some people might think. <laughs> oh boy, every author that, or researcher that I talk to more or less comes back to that same theme, it seems like, that how people I honestly think we're mm-hmm. in this for the attention or especially for the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've, you've been published more than most people. You've probably got a little trickle of income coming in. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, most, I would stress that, you know, the, the UFO, I, I work full-time as a, as a writer, but most of what I do is freelance journalism, just mainstream journalism for newspapers and magazines. Uh, on you know just on mainstream news stories that's that's my my primary job and the UFO stuff is just like a you know a little sideline but you know I mean I would stress to people I don't I do what I do because it's a passion I don't do it because you know for, for the money angle obviously it's nice to get some sort of something from it but you know my my main income just comes from general from news writing I, I do a lot of feature writing for the English Daily Express newspaper and um, also for a lot of animal um, based magazines, um, dog and pet magazines, and uh, things like that, and uh, that's sort of my uh, my main income. But yeah, it's quite funny when sometimes people think you know you're driving around in a Ferrari and living in the Hollywood Hills or something, <laughs> all because you wrote a UFO book you know ten years ago or whatever. I'm driving around in a car 15 years old with a broken mirror on it right now that I can't afford to get fixed. Well, <laughs> dare I tell you that I don't even have a car. <laughs> oh, that's right. But is it because you hate driving or? Oh, no, it's because I don't have the cash to go out and buy one. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Well, again. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, um, I'm very familiar with the buses <laughs> and public right, transport. And, oh, and you live in a big city, too. That Yeah, I live in Dallas, scary. yeah. I want to remind people, if you want to buy any of Nick Redfern's book, I have his main site linked right now from livefromroswell.com, but it's just your name, nickredfern.com, correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay, and he's also got, if you if you want some information that's interesting and up-to-date, his book, Saucer Spies, on how the U.S. government, or many governments, uh, do surveillance on UFO researchers just to keep tabs on what we're learning and saying to one another.
he does have a whole book on the subject, and you could definitely help Nick get a car by buying a thousand dollars that book. <laughs> but if you don't want to spend that kind of money, um, he does have a new blog where he is posting uh, constantly updated material on the subject. Um, and it's uh, saucerspies.blogspot.com if you want to keep that in just your favorites folder and see what's new, what new cases are coming out where people are being, or where people are um, having evidence that the government is somehow spying on them or communicating with them or intimidating them. And some of the articles you've got on there that I was going to ask about real quick, mm -hmm. oh, I've got to punch it back up again. But um, it's an older one. Uh, it's just at the top of your site right now. We've got about three, four minutes mm -hmm. left before we uh, close out for the program. But you've mentioned James McDonald and the mm. FBI, and I'm curious about that because not many people today even know who James McDonald is, and I think it's worth mentioning his name and story as yeah, we close out Jim here. McDonald was, you know, I, I guess one of the, the earlier UFO researchers in the 60s and unfortunately committed suicide. Um, but what was important about McDonald was that, you know, he had a scientific background, he was very, very grounded and had a, a great deal of credibility in that respect. And... Um, who was a, sort of very much a forward thinker and not the sort of person who was easy to hammer into the ground because, you know, he, was, he had credentials, he, he had a good background. Um, I mean, I know some people have sort of, you know, said dark things that his suicide was somehow, you know, connected with ominous goings-on and suspicious. I don't personally think it was as such, but I think, you know, the, the biggest tragedy of all was that we, when he committed suicide, I think it was 70 or 71, you know, we lost someone who who kind of like um, straddled the between the UFO community and the mainstream scientific community as well. And, you know, there aren't many people today in the subject or since that, that have that sort of capability. You know, the people like Hynek or Stan Friedman, but, you know, beyond Stan and, and Jay and Hynek and James McDonald, there haven't really been that many people with, you know, who can talk authoritatively and with credibility who... You know, yes, they're passionate about the UFO subject, but also, you know, they're not someone who can be hammered into the ground because they have no scientific credentials or whatever they do. And that was that was the case with, with Jim McDonald. Um, actually, I think there's a book. I forget what it's called now, but somebody wrote a book, um, Andruffle, um, a book called Firestorm, which is a very good book. Um, I own it, yes. Yeah, right. that's it a good is. one. That's all about um, James McDonald's life and death and... Um, Basically, the the, uh, the subtitle, I think, was uh, James McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. So, you know, that kind of gives you a good eye, good indication of where he was coming from. He was looking to, you know, legit and did actually kind of legitimize ufology as a scientific discipline uh, in the same way that Hynek tried to um, and, and Stan Friedman did as well, or does still. Um, so, and unfortunately, you know, today you're quite right that a lot of people in the subject don't really know McDonald's name. He's, he's one of these that, unfortunately, in some respects, has been kind of lost to you know some of the the newer people and the newer generations in the subject that have perhaps come along in the last ten years or so. You know, and hear lots about got flying a, triangles and abductions, but not what was going on in the 60s or early 70s. You've got a blog entry on him right now on your Saucer Spies blog. We're out of time, so I just have to kind of cut in. Okay. I'll remind people of uh, two things that I'm going to take a, about a two-week break. And you may have a rerun or something else going on. 
Uh, I'll be back the first Sunday in January with all new programming here. And uh, just this uh, final Fox News alert before I sign off here uh, for the rest of the year is that there's a Fox News alert that came in at the last minute that Linda let us know about, that in Washington, D.C., uh, Fox News is saying they will not be having any nativity scenes because in all of Washington, D.C., they cannot find three wise men or one virgin. <laughs> there was no problem filling the stable with asses, the, the <laughs> news report says, though. So on that note, I'm going to wish everybody uh, to have a happy, safe end of the year, whatever you're going to be doing with it the next few weeks. I'll be back the first Sunday of January. Wish me a happy break, and thank you once again, Nick, for joining us on Live from Roswell. Sure, Guy. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. God bless you and everybody else out there. Bye-bye. Bye.